have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to the book of Acts uh, chapter nine is where we're gonna be midway through chapter nine. Um, the, the book of Acts is a fascinating book of the Bible. If you've never spent a great deal of time in it, uh, or if, if you are coming in for the first time this morning, this book of the Bible basically tells the story of a bunch of ordinary people empowered by the extraordinary spirit of God, turning the world upside down for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's kind of the thesis statement for the book of Acts. Up to this point, we, we've seen crazy things already. We've seen imprisonments and escapes. We've seen magic and miracles. We've seen comedy and tragedy, everything that would make a, a good major motion picture. We've seen it already thus far, and we're not even halfway through this book of the Bible. We've seen various threats to the church overcome by the power of God's spirit, including persecution, hypocrisy, division, and distraction. We've seen all kinds of people forever changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, be it religious priests or uh, irreligious crowds enamored with black magic. Going back to uh, Acts chapter eight, we've seen Hebrews, Samaritans, Asians, Egyptians, Ethiopians, all rescued by the gospel of grace. We've seen some people respond to public sermons. Others respond to one-on-one evangelism. We've seen rich and poor people rescued by the gospel. We've seen educated and uneducated. We've seen royalty and peasants, men and women, young and old. It just doesn't matter. God is no respecter of person. Salvation is by grace alone. We've seen the good news of, of Jesus spread throughout Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. We've seen the beginnings of the gospel going forth to the end of the earth. This morning, we get a front row seat to one of the most significant moments in, in all of the book of Acts, particularly for most everyone in this room. Let me, let me pray for us and, and we'll go ahead and we'll dive in to one of the most fascinating passages in all of the book of Acts. God, I pray that what, what we're about to spend time looking at this morning would not be lost on us, the significance of, of, what, of what's there, the back portion of chapter nine, chapter 10, even the beginnings of chapter 11. God, I pray that we would see that this morning's story is our story. I pray that we would be overwhelmed by your grace yet again, that not only would our, our minds be awakened this morning by the beauty of your word, the glory of your gospel, but that our hearts would be stirred, that we would see something of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ this morning, that we would leave this place as ambassadors of the gospel, that we would take this gospel forth in declaration and in display, in word and in deed, and that God, through us as instruments of redemption, that, that you would rescue more and more people for your glory and for their, their joy and, and eternal good. God, I pray you would do that in this room. If there's any of you coming in this morning, um, be it religiously checking all the right boxes, but, but somehow missing the gospel of grace in it all, or coming in and, and thinking um, that perhaps they're too far beyond the reaches of your grace, based on the things that they've done, the ways that they've lived. God, I pray that you would save mightily and that you would move in the hearts of your people. God, would you do that now, Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that we see in this morning's passage, would, would you stir mightily in our time together as we open up the scriptures? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. 
So just to catch you up to speed, particularly if you come in this morning, you haven't been a part of this series up to this point thus far. Last week, we took a look at one of the most famous conversion stories in all of church history, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. It's a significant part of God's story of redemption in the book of Acts because Paul, as he would come to be known, would go on to become an evangelistic pioneer, planting churches all over the Mediterranean landscape. Not only that, he would also go on to to author more New Testament books of the Bible than any other writer, emphasizing doctrines that are significant and central to the Christian faith, like union with Christ, justification by faith alone. We'll, We'll eventually come back around to the Apostle Paul, particularly when we get to the part of the book of Acts where we take a look at his famous missionary journeys. But but for now, Luke shifts our attention from the Apostle Paul to two other individuals, one of whom we've already spent a little bit of time with in this series, namely Peter, the other to whom we're we're introduced for the very first time, a man by the name of Cornelius, a man whose story, like the Apostle Paul, would eventually change the landscape of Christianity forever. Let's start with Peter. Picking up the story in chapter nine, verse 32, we're told, now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda, And there he found a man named Aeneas bedridden for eight years who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. So so Peter makes his way to this semi-Gentile city, roughly 20 miles northwest of of Jerusalem, not too far away from the city of Jerusalem, which includes a community of Christians likely made up of fugitives from the Jerusalem persecution going back earlier in the book of Acts. And while he's there, Peter encounters this man who's paralyzed. Not the first time we've seen that kind of, this kind of encounter in the book of Acts, right? You go back to chapter three, the man standing outside the temple who's paralyzed that um, Peter heals Uh, by the power of the Spirit. Here, Peter's involved in a very similar kind of healing. And and it's not the only miracle, nor the most spectacular miracle that that we see in this morning's passage. Goes on to say in verse 36, now there was in Joppa, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. That is not a name that would fly in most 21st century American middle schools, right? She was full of good works and acts of charity, In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So so you have this woman in a neighboring city, the city of Joppa, who's recently passed away, whose body is already being prepared for burial, we're told. Word gets out that that Peter's nearby, the one and same Peter whose healing powers have raised paralytics to walk. We've seen his shadow heal people, going back to earlier in this book. And so friends of this recently deceased woman send for Peter. Makes a lot of sense, right? And so we're told in verse 39 that Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. And then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive and it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. Coming out of, the story of Saul's conversion, going back to last week, Luke zooms in on two particular miracles, the healing of a paralytic and the raising of a dead woman. Just like any 
literary work, you have to ask the question, why? There's a reason, right? The book of Acts is not 29 or 30 or 31 chapters. There's a reason that certain things are included and other things are not. Why in a book of the Bible filled with so many signs and wonders from start to finish, why include the details of these two miracles? And why do so at this point in the story? Why hit the pause button on the apostle Paul and zoom in here? Well, interestingly, both of these miracles echo the the healing work of Jesus in his own public ministry. Peter's healing of the paralytic echoes Jesus's healing of the paralytic in Capernaum in Mark chapter two. Uh, Even even more clearly evidence, Peter's raising of of a dead woman to life. That miracle uh, echoes Jesus's raising of Jairus's daughter in Luke chapter seven, where we're told that Jesus said, Talitha, arise. Talitha meaning little girl. Here, Peter says, Tabitha, arise. It's so close in language that scribes have actually miswritten copies of scripture, confusing the two passages for one another. Why include two miracles that are so incredibly similar to what we see in the very ministry of Jesus Christ himself, and particularly at this point in the book of Acts? Well, for one, it's a simple reminder of what Luke's been saying from the very beginning. Remember the book of Luke, Luke's gospel account deals with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Luke tells us that at the very beginning of the book of Acts. The book of Acts, it's a sequel to Luke's gospel account, tells the story of what Jesus continued to do and teach after his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Another way we could say it, in the book of Luke, we read about what Jesus taught and did on earth. In the book of Acts, we read about what Jesus taught and did from heaven. That these two miracles remind us that, that Jesus is alive and he's ministering from the throne of heaven. But, but there's something else going on here. Peter Peter's about to get involved in a hairy situation, a situation that, that has the ability to undermine every bit of his credibility, namely the association with and the taking of the gospel to the Gentile people. In fact, when we get to chapter 11, and we'll get there momentarily, we're gonna see Peter criticized by his own Jewish brethren. And so Luke makes sure to include these two miracles so that there's no question as to whether or not Peter has been given authority by Jesus Christ himself. He's a true apostle. He's one who walks in the power and presence of Jesus Christ. As you move into verse 43, we're told, and he, Peter, stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now, that little sentence might not seem like a very big deal. Great, Peter bunked up at a buddy's house. But, but there's a seemingly small descriptor in that sentence, one that hints at what God is actually up to at this point in the story of Acts, that Peter finds himself in the city of Joppa. What, what do we know about the city of Joppa? You only see Joppa show up on a couple of occasions prior to the book of Acts. Well, we know that it just so happens to be the port city that Jonah went to in an effort to flee from the presence of the Lord. Anybody remember that story where God calls Jonah to to Nineveh to preach to the wicked Ninevites, a ministry opportunity that Jonah isn't too keen on, right? Because he absolutely hates the Ninevites. He's he's openly uh, professing his hatred at certain points in the story. He knows that if he goes to Nineveh, that the Ninevites will repent in light of his preaching. And so he runs to Joppa, he hops on a boat, He heads in the exact opposite direction of of where God's called him to go. He gets caught up in a storm at sea, is thrown overboard and ends up in the belly of a great fish, eventually gets spit up on dry land, given a second chance to respond to God's calling. It's a warp speed summary of the book of Jonah. He ultimately goes to Nineveh, but he's not too happy about it. In fact, we're told toward the end of the story, Jonah chapter four, verses one and two, 
but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're gracious. You're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah says, I knew you were gonna do it. I knew you were gonna rescue these people that I hate so much. That Jonah's fine with being an object of mercy. He just doesn't wanna be an agent of mercy. Story of Jonah, it's an incredible story in part because it reveals the riches of God's mercy and grace to both religious and irreligious people. To religious Jonah, God says, I'm the God of second chances. I'm not a cruel taskmaster waiting to smite you when you mess up. I'm not sitting up in the heavenlies waiting to zap you with lightning bolts uh, every time you fail. I'm your father. You're my child. I know what's best for you. You ran away from my best for you. And so I did what I had to do to get you back, namely hurled a hurricane at you. And I'm sticking to my guns, going to Nineveh is my best for you. Here's a second chance. To irreligious Nineveh, God says, I'm coming, you bunch of undeserving barbarians and sex addicts, and even a racist, bigoted pastor cannot stop me from saving you. I'm the God who turns sinners into saints. I'm the God who turns blasphemers into believers by my grace. That's just who I am. To see the, the city of Joppa enter the story of Acts is a huge deal. Because the reality of what's happening at this point in the story, there's a new Jonah in town and a new Nineveh on God's radar. The new Jonah being Peter himself, the new Nineveh being the entire Gentile world. That we're meant to wonder, to whom or what is God about to call Peter to next? And how in the world is Peter gonna respond? Luke wastes no time. Chapter 10, verse one. We're told at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, like this brother already, a devout man who feared God with all of his household and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Verse three, at about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The story of Cornelius, it's the lengthiest narrative in all the book of Acts. I hope you've consumed some coffee this morning. We're, we're gonna be here for a while. Sermon's not gonna be any longer than it usually is. But, but God's trying to communicate something here in, in this particular passage. And it's so weighty and significant that it requires some repetition. The repetition of visions, both of Cornelius and Peter, they're both gonna experience a visitation from God. Even chapter 11, as we close out this morning, uh, just a few minutes from now, is a retelling of the events of chapter 10 because it's so significant what God's doing here that that it must be put on repeat. It must be retold to people who are skeptical about what God is, is up to in this moment. One of the most monumental turns in the mission of the advancement of the gospel. Cornelius, we're told, is a centurion, which means that he's in charge of roughly 100 men. He's a member of the Italian cohort is made up of roughly 600 men. Suffice it to say that Cornelius is, is probably well-paid and socially well-to-do, paid as much as five times more than an ordinary soldier uh, would have been in his day. He's described as a God-fearer, meaning that he's a Gentile who worships the God of Israel. 
He's a morally upright man, but he's not a Christian. We'll see that momentarily. We're told that God sends an angel to Cornelius telling him to send for Peter in Joppa. Around that same time, God gives Peter a really strange vision as well. We're told in verse nine, the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, that is Cornelius's men, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or, or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. You picture Peter, he's up on a, on a flat roof, the roof of Simon, his friend's house, and he's given this vision from God of a, of a sheet filled with all kinds of different animals, something that according to uh, Jewish dietary law, some are, would have been considered unclean and unfit to eat, that God had, had taught Israel to regard themselves as set apart from the rest of the world, different from the nations. And one of the ways that God had set them apart was through Jewish dietary laws. As you can imagine, such dietary laws would have made it incredibly difficult to associate with non-Jewish people. Some of you guys know this, whether you're on a restricted diet based on just simple wellness and, and nutrition, or um, perhaps you're, you're medically being pushed into a direction where your diet is more restricted and all of a sudden, you know, it, it becomes more difficult to, hey, let's go grab lunch. Okay, how are we gonna do that? Like we gotta negotiate the terms of how this is all gonna work out because I have a restricted diet, you have a restricted diet. We're trying to sort out how to make that happen. It makes um, interpersonal relationships all the more difficult. In, in part having to do with dietary laws, the Jewish people were set apart in Israel's history and they began, many of them, to perceive the barrier as a, a declaration that they were intrinsically better than the Gentiles. That their set-apartness was not fueled by God's grace, but rather by their intrinsic lovability. They began to believe that. Many of them also began to confuse dietary obedience with moral holiness, which is why Jesus made clear that it's not what goes in, into a person that defiles them, but rather what comes out, what proceeds from their heart, Mark chapter seven. Peter gets this vision from God in which this significant marker distinguishing Jew and Gentile is seemingly being abolished by the Lord. Like he's in a bit of an ethical predicament, right? The law says don't, God says do. What, how are you gonna respond in this moment? God is removing the barrier to the Gentile world. He's showing Peter that, that associating with Gentiles is part of his redemptive mission, that Gentiles are not to be considered common and unclean, that Jesus died for Gentiles too. That, that the gospel breaks down cultural and racial barriers between people, that God can make anyone fit for his presence through the shed blood of Jesus. If you think you're beyond the reach of God's grace, you're wrong. The sheet in Peter's vision, you could say, is the church filled with all classes and races. And Peter's response, cool, let's go reach some Gentiles. Not quite. Right, like the story of Jonah, this morning's passage is just as much about the quote-unquote conversion of Peter as it is the conversion of Cornelius. That The fact that, that God has had to send strong supernatural visions to Peter to get him to visit a Gentile, and not just once, but on three different occasions, 
that in and of itself shows you how strong the prejudices are, just how big the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile are at this moment in, in history. Story goes on in verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I've sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. Peter's still trying to make sense of this vision he's just been giving. Three Gentiles show up at the front door. We work for a man named Cornelius. He sent us to you because he says he was directed by an angel to do so. The, the arrival of these men right around the time of Peter's vision, it only helps to authenticate for Peter that God's actually at work here. And so Peter invites these men into the home where he's staying. That's a big deal. We already see God at work in Peter's heart before we even finish the story. Continuing on, the end of verse 23, it says, the next day he rose, Peter did, and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. You're gonna see on a number of occasions, witnesses so critical because of, of what's happening in this moment, this barrier being brought down, that there's a need for people looking in as witnesses to authenticate it. Verse 24, and on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. At this point in the story, you have this fascinating picture of the doctrine of man created with humility, not on the same level with God, and yet created with dignity, not on the same level as animals. And thus Cornelius has no business treating Peter like a God, and Peter has no business treating Cornelius like a dog. The Peter has been taught by God through a vision that no person is unfit to associate with. And thus he, he's present in the home of, of a Gentile man, but, but he doesn't yet understand why he's there. And so Cornelius tells him in verse 30, four days ago, about this hour, and again, you have a repeat of the vision. I was praying in my house at the ninth hour and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. And so I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. A preacher's dream, right? We're all on pins and needles to hear what God would have you say to us. In verse 34, we're told what that sermon looked like in content. We're told that Peter opened his mouth and he said, and you begin to see many of the same contents that we heard in the preaching of the gospel to the Jewish people. Peter said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, 
But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. What's going on here? What does it mean, verse 35, that God accepts anyone who fears him and does what is right? Does it mean that you just have to be a good person? If so, this, this passage is a little bizarre, right? Because Cornelius, if anyone, would have had no need for Peter to come and preach the gospel to him. We're talking about a man who prayed continually, and thus he was a man who embraced spiritual disciplines. We're talking about a man who was devout, meaning that he did what was right. We're talking about a man who gave alms generously, meaning that he was kind to the poor, probably a decent tither. you, You can't get any more morally upright than Cornelius, yet here's Peter proclaiming the good news of salvation for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ that if Cornelius' only hope is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, what does that say about our need for grace? There's something in this passage for religious people. If you come in this morning living a good, exemplary, moral life, you can do that and, and miss the saving grace of God in it all. It's very possible. Peter comes in and proclaims the gospel to this Gentile man along with his family and friends. He talks about Jesus's life and ministry. He lived the perfect life we could never live, verse 38. He talked about Jesus's curse-bearing death on behalf of sinners, verse 39. He talked about Jesus's bodily resurrection, verses 40 and 41. He talked about Jesus's future return as judge of the living and the dead, verse 42. And he talked about Jesus's offer of salvation, not just to Jews, but to Everyone who believes, verse 43. As a Gentile, I say praise be to God. Story goes on, really starts to come to a close in verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, I mean, I love this. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. Before Peter can even finish his sermon, the Holy Spirit is is poured out on this Gentile crowd. Not not everyone who receives the Spirit in in the book of Acts speaks in tongues, but here evidently God wants to make crystal clear that Gentiles are full members of the church. And so you have this scene resembling the day of Pentecost in chapter two, uh, the Samaritan revival in chapter eight. Here you see this new stage of the progress of the gospel witness going forth that Going back to Jesus' earliest days on planet Earth, Luke chapter two, when he was presented at the temple as a child, the promise was declared that Jesus would be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. 
that John the Baptist had preached, going back to Luke chapter three, that all flesh shall, shall see the salvation of God. That Jesus himself, in the wake of his resurrection, Luke 24, had declared, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. And then, to come back to Jesus' most famous words of Acts chapter one, he said to his apostles, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Welcome to the beginning of the end of the earth, the last of Jesus's concentric circles, the home of Cornelius, the gospel breaking through to the Gentiles. In this case, the apostles don't have to come from somewhere else like they did in Acts chapter eight with the Samaritan revival because Peter's already there. He is an apostle. He sees it with his own eyes. The gospel really is for the nations. He's able to take that eyewitness account back to Jerusalem. You can just imagine this scene. Peter's asked to stay for several days in the wake of this revival moment among a Gentile people, which would have involved a number of shared meals around the dining room, probably similar to what we experienced even earlier this week. Jew and Gentile dishing out their food from the same ladle, tangible expression of the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile broken down by the blood of Jesus Christ. Rarely does the gospel make headway without some form of resistance. If you're a Christian, you know that. And so we're told, closing out this morning's passage, chapter 11, verse one, now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. Here's another repetition of the story. I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. And looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. Verse 11, and behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea, and the spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me. I got my eyewitnesses and we entered the man's house and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. There's, there's a key detail that prior to that declaration, uh, Cornelius was not a, a Christian. He says, you and all your household, verse 15, and I, I began to speak. The Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us in the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Peter essentially retells the, the events and details of chapter 10 here to a skeptical Jewish crowd. Maybe they're skeptical because things are happening outside the city of God, Jerusalem, though the gospel had already begun to spread. Maybe they're skeptical um, because there's this idea that in order to convert to Christianity, you have to first convert to Judaism. 
So perhaps it's this idea of be circumcised, practice the, the ritual mosaic laws, and then you can become a Christian. And Peter's like, the Holy Spirit didn't seem to wanna wait. I, I, I attempted to get to the altar call to have everyone close their eyes, raise your hand if you're not a follower of Jesus, call them down the aisle. Holy Spirit wasn't interested in that. What do you want me to do? You want me to get in the way? I wasn't about to tell the Holy Spirit. He had to hit the pause button to wait on my altar call or so that I could pull out the knife and do a little circumcising before he could fall and come in power or get the people to practice a few Jewish customs just to check that box. Peter says, what do you expect? The spirit of God came in power. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul says it this way. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The Gentiles are drinking from that well here in chapters 10 and 11. The falling of the Holy Spirit on Cornelius and his family, it's a declaration that the gospel is not Jesus plus anything. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. The gospel is a message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. What a crazy story of God's miraculous power and his lavish grace. And, and by the way, it's not just a story. If you're not of Jewish descent, it's your story. I don't know if, this may be a terrible illustration, but it's kind of your, your Independence Day, your 4th of July. Like this is the turn where, where we see that the gospel is for the Gentiles too. It'd be so easy for us to just gloss over a story like this, taking for granted that Gentile people can have an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. After all, we live in a predominantly Gentile culture, right? We, we come to assume that, yeah, of course, we deserve to have the gospel proclaimed in our context and to hear the, the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't take this story for granted. This, is, this story is a declaration that the gospel is for you. Put your name in that blank, make it personal. It's not just that, that Jesus came to die that, that for God so loved the world. It's that God loves you. He loves you. This is a declaration that Christianity is a universal and not simply an ethnic religion. John Stott in his commentary on this morning's passage says it this way. He says, Luke has now recounted the conversions of Saul and Cornelius. The differences between these two men were considerable. In race, Saul was a Jew, Cornelius a Gentile. In culture, Saul was a scholar, Cornelius a soldier. In religion, Saul was a bigot, Cornelius a seeker. Yet both were converted by the gracious initiative of God. Both received forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And both were baptized and welcomed into the Christian family on equal terms. This fact is a signal testimony to the power and impartiality of the gospel of Christ, which is still the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Similar to last week, there's a part of me in preaching, I wanna give you like all these practical application points. But similar to last week, there's this reality that we're called to simply marvel that Jesus's brightness shine on the retina of our human souls. It's, it's amazing. It's a miracle. Just like the Apostle Paul, just like Cornelius and his family and friends. In addition, I mentioned earlier that, that this story is just as much about Peter's quote-unquote conversion as it is Cornelius's, that, that though Peter was already a Christ follower, 
God still had some work to do on Peter's heart. And so I think one of the things we can ask this morning is what about me? Ask yourself that question. Do, do I have a version of the quote unquote unreachable Gentile? Right? For some, it's the person with multiple tattoos and piercings. For others, it's the person in a same gender attraction relationship. Maybe the person on the other side of the political aisle. Maybe you even experienced some flesh and blood version of this this week where, where you have that family member that you're like, yep, they're the ostracized one. I'm glad I'm not them. Is there anyone you've declared in your heart like Peter, by no means, Lord? Because here's the reality of the gospel. Nobody says it better than Tim Keller. He says, the religion of good works will definitely give some people the right to feel superior to others. But the gospel of grace means that no saved person can feel superior to any other saved person because we are all saved by grace alone. Do do we see anyone and everyone around us as potential heirs of grace? There's no one that that we shouldn't be willing to to take the hope of the gospel to, nor should should we allow discrimination a breeding ground within the church. Or, or, Or maybe it's not so much discrimination as it is traditionalism. Maybe your thinking is like Peter, people might think I'm a complete liberal if I associate with, and then you fill in the blank with whoever that is. My most orthodox friends will criticize me of abandoning orthodoxy. I remember when I first became a Christian back in college, um, I, was, I was a singer, songwriter, musician. I guess I still kind of am, though I never really break the guitar out quite as much. But, but, but I was in circles of, of people that were pretty raw and rough around the edges. And, and then I became a Christian and I remember the, the traditionalism of the deepest parts of the deep South, which is where I was located, declared to me that there were places that I wasn't allowed to go, which by the way, weren't strip clubs and meth labs. Um, but according to religious traditions and expectations, I, I wasn't to go to these places and hang out with these people Um, because it would damage my reputation. And so I remember one of the first things I wrestled with was, oh, okay, so to be a follower of Jesus, I have to love the Bible, but not sinners. And it became this long, drawn-out sort of story for me of hanging out in the ditch of hyper-fundamentalism. Love your Bible. If those people clean themselves up, they can come hang out with us. And then the ditch of hyper-liberalism that said, we won't stand for anything because we don't wanna lose the relationship with sinners. And so orthodoxy and good theology is not something we're gonna stand up for, but you can come hang out with whoever you want to. And and I remember thinking, is there a third way? Is that an option? And and part of the reason that we're even an Acts 29 church is because that was my first experience encountering a third way that said, you can love your Bible and be a friend of sinners. Both are okay, and we actually see it in scripture itself. But we have to ask the question, like Peter, are we willing to face criticism for pointing people to Jesus? Notice that Jesus was not a drunkard, nor was he a glutton, but he got accused of it because of who he hung out with. Or, or maybe it's not discrimination nor traditionalism. Maybe it's just simple, simply comfortability with the status quo. If I start pointing people to Jesus, things are gonna change. Like, the church will change. I kind of like a small church. If we start pointing people to Jesus, small church becomes a little bit bigger church. And then what, is, what are the implications of that, you know? Um, and so one of the things I find that we have to battle a lot as, as a staff and elder team is, is embracing the encouragement of, I like, I like this church. I like that I can know and be known. And at the same time, try to graciously say, but what if? 
Like, what if we point people to Jesus and that's just not so moving forward? What are we gonna do with that? What if things change? Derek Thomas, in his commentary on Acts, he says, resistance to evangelism and world missions has often been greatest in our own local churches because some rightly perceive that engaging in either will change the church. Churches that have caught the vision are never the same again. Some things will have to be relinquished in order to accommodate such an emphasis. They are not essential marks of the church, though it will often be insisted that they are. Such churches, he says, are doomed to extinction within a generation or two. They have lost sight of the vision of what the church of Jesus Christ was meant to be. Hear me loud and clearly that, that as I bring this up, I'm not professing a gospel of Jesus plus be a good evangelist. Jesus was the perfect evangelist on your behalf. He lived the life you couldn't live. He died the death you deserve to die. But what I am advocating is that when the gospel radically grabs hold of our hearts, it changes us and it causes us to, to be a people who can't help but profess it and display it with our lives no matter where we go. I don't know about you, but to come, come back to Derek Thomas's quote, I don't want this church to be extinct within a generation or two. I mean, it's gonna take a generation or two of people who really do love and center their lives on the gospel just to see the sparks of revival in this culturally Christian context. And so my prayer is, may discrimination nor traditionalism nor the comfort of the status quo keep us from sharing the gospel. May our marveling at the lavish nature of God's grace in our own lives lead us to share it with anyone and everyone that we come in contact with. May this church be a beacon of light that penetrates into the most unlikely of places like we see in this morning's passage for the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. Mm-hmm.